This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 9th of November. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Optus still isn't explaining exactly what caused yesterday's massive phone and internet outage and now the federal government has announced an investigation. Optus says it'll fully cooperate with the probe. The telco's blaming a very rare technical network outage for why 10 million customers had no service for most of yesterday. Isabel Masali reports. Millions of Australians were caught by surprise when suddenly plunged into the digital dark age. Toby Murray was one of them. He's an associate professor at the University of Melbourne. So we have certainly seen outages before of mobile networks in Australia, but an outage that affects not only the mobile network, but also internet connectivity and also the landlines as well, that is pretty unprecedented. And for an outage of that magnitude to last for a good eight hours is certainly unprecedented in Australia and frustrating and disappointing for many people. Optus phone and internet services have now been restored and Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin is blaming the outage on a technical network issue. Professor Murray says it shouldn't have happened in the first place. These systems are supposed to be engineered in a way where these kinds of outages cannot occur or the probability of them occurring is incredibly small. And so it certainly boggles my mind as to how this outage might have occurred and I eagerly await the findings or the outcomes. And he wants to know how other telcos would handle a similar crisis. Especially when Telstra provides the only source of mobile phone connectivity to many Australians in rural and remote areas. Uh, And so I certainly think that there is an argument to be made for greater degrees of transparency from our telecommunications companies. Nothing sinister appears to be behind the outage, unlike a year ago when hackers stole personal data from Optus customers. But the company has again suffered enormous reputational damage. However, what worries Jane McMaster from Engineers Australia is the large-scale impacts of this type of outage. We're on a trajectory as a society to embed technology in just about all aspects of of our uh, world. And the more complexity there is, the more potential there is for cascading risk. And by cascading risk, I mean this domino-like effect of system failures or faults leading to other system failures or faults because they have relied critically on the first system. Jane McMaster is arguing for a systems-level analysis to understand where our vulnerabilities are as a nation. She notes the Department of Home Affairs already looks into this, but there's more work to be done. I think we all have a responsibility to look at our enterprises and our daily lives and understand which systems we rely on every day for critical reasons and think about where the risks are and what we might do. And she says we've seen enough serious system outages in recent times to know they'll keep occurring. So we need to be prepared. Isabel Masali reporting. And we approached Optus Chief Executive Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin for an interview, but we're told she's unavailable. Almost 100 asylum seekers being held in immigration detention, many of them for years, could be released after the High Court ruled the federal government's policy is illegal. The court found it was unconstitutional to detain a person when there was no prospect of deporting them in the foreseeable future, a ruling that could lead to hundreds of false imprisonment claims against the government. Here's political reporter Nicole Hegarty. 
The overturning of a near two-decade-old precedent is posing potential headaches for the federal government. Detention can no longer be forever. Right now, there are people who must be released in accordance with this ruling. David Mann is the Executive Director of Refugee Legal. He says the decision is of profound consequence. It's critical that the government um, move swiftly to uh, ensure that there is fundamental reform of detention policy in this country. Um, the High Court's ruling is an opportunity for the government to fundamentally reform detention policy in this country. The policy of holding people in indefinite immigration detention with no real prospect of being removed from the country has been deemed to be unconstitutional. Chief Justice Stephen Gagler announcing the majority of justices agreed sections of the Migration Act were unconstitutional, paving the way for the immediate release of almost 100 people and raising questions about the future of a further cohort of 300. David Mann says the government must act swiftly. It must also then address very, the very serious consequences of the deprivation of liberty unlawfully for so many people over the years and that may well involve um, looking into compensation uh, for um, the harm done to people. The ruling, which caught many by surprise for its release at the end of the hearing rather than months later, related specifically to a Rohingya man from Myanmar who was in detention after serving time for child sex offences. It sets a new test for a person in immigration detention. Is there a real prospect of them being removed from Australia in the reasonably foreseeable future? If not, then they cannot legally be detained. The government is considering the judgment, with a spokesperson telling the ABC safety of the community remains the utmost priority of the government. Individuals released into the community from immigration detention may be subject to certain visa conditions. Josephine Langbian is the Acting Managing Director at the Human Rights Law Centre and was in court for the ruling. This is a hugely significant decision which will have life-changing consequences for people who have been detained for years without knowing when or even if they will ever be released. She says the ruling will have consequences for government policy. The government is now going to have to take action to make sure that it's detaining people within the limits of its powers uh, under the constitution and Hopefully this means a shift in the government's attitudes. The government will continue to work through the consequences of that decision. Nicole Hegarty there. Israel's Defence Force claims Hamas has now lost control of northern Gaza as tens of thousands of Palestinians continue to flee south. The intense bombardment and ground incursion is continuing and senior United Nations officials are now accusing Israel and Hamas of war crimes. Correspondent Eric Torchek is in Jerusalem. Eric, the pace of Palestinian civilians fleeing the combat zone in northern Gaza seems to have picked up. What do you think is happening there? So, David, the Israeli military has been advertising to Gazans that it is opening what it calls safe corridors for them to evacuate. In the preceding days, many people in Gaza City have said they've been afraid to evacuate because there's continuing fire. Uh, so initially, not many people uh, left Gaza City. But now they can see Israeli troops all around. They can hear gun battles in certain parts 
of Gaza City and clearly the situation there has deteriorated. Uh, there were more airstrikes today in the Jabalia area, uh, killing, according to some reports, about 18 people died in that airstrike there. So conditions are getting pretty bad. Uh, it's being harder to get fresh food. There's not very much water. And uh, in the first day that Israel opened a corridor, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said about 2,000 people, it estimates, left by one of those safe corridors. And the next day, 15,000. Uh, now the IDF spokesman, Daniel Hagari, says far more people took the chance to leave. We saw today how 50,000 Gazans had passed from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south of the Gaza Strip. They are leaving because they understand that Hamas has lost control over northern Gaza Strip and it is more safe and secure in the south and they can have water, food and medications over there. And Eric, there's been strong condemnation from the United Nations. What's the UN had to say? Well, David, the UN's Human Rights Commissioner, Volker Turk, is on the Rafah side of the border between Egypt and Gaza, where he's inspecting the humanitarian supplies going in. He says that lifeline, uh, supplying Gazans with food, water and medicine, is incredibly thin. Uh, and he said conditions are just appalling for people inside Gaza. He says both Hamas and Israel have been committing war crimes. Hamas, in its heinous actions, his word, on uh, October the 7th, uh, killing 1,400 Israelis and kidnapping 240 others. Uh, but Israel, he said also, in response response has committed collective punishment and forced displacement of Gazans, something Israel denies. Israel says it's acting in accordance uh, with international law. And those comments come as the UN Secretary General um, says there's clearly a major problem with Israel's military operation. He says he's very concerned by the civilian death toll in Gaza. Here's what he had to say. There are violations by Hamas when they have human uh, shields. But uh, when one looks at the number of civilians that were killed with the military operations, there is something that is clearly wrong. Every year, the highest number of killing of children by any of the actors in all the conflicts that uh, we witness is the maximum in the hundreds. We have, in a few days in Gaza, thousands and thousands of children killed which means there is also something clearly wrong in the way the military operations are being done. That's the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres and before him our correspondent, Eric Torchek. Climate change could again be the sticking point as leaders from Pacific Island nations meet in the Cook Islands over the next two days. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has travelled from China directly to the Pacific Islands Forum, where security and trade are also on the agenda. Lethe Mavono reports from the Cook Islands capital. It's a long way from China, but the idyllic surrounds of Rarotonga, the Cook Islands' main island, is where Anthony Albanese is now meeting Pacific Island leaders. And just like past forums, climate is the number one agenda item. No doubt we'll have discussions about climate change. My government is very committed to action on climate change. We have a comprehensive plan that we are putting in place. Yet parts of this plan are under the microscope. How do you feel about Australia approving more fossil fuel and gas projects? Well, it's uh, an issue that we, we are working uh, with Australia. That's Kausia Natano, Prime Minister of Tuvalu, a tiny atoll nation where sea level rises are threatening its very existence. He's met with Prime Minister Albanese on the sidelines of the forum. Publicly, Mr Natano says he understands Australia's position. 
Yet other Pacific leaders have criticized Australia's climate policies. And Pacific watchers say behind closed doors, there could be a strong push for Australia to do more. If Australia is truly committed to the Pacific, then it must start by addressing the expansion of fossil fuel projects. Climate activist Joseph Sikulu is a Tongan who grew up in Western Sydney. He spoke at the forum this week. I mean, how can this government not see the hypocrisy of pretending to be a climate leader on one hand, whilst continuing to do the things that are causing it the most on the other? Australia is pushing to host a crucial meeting of the world's climate negotiators in 2026 in a joint bid with Pacific Island nations. The government is expected to announce a range of climate-focused funding initiatives for the region at the forum. And the outcomes of this week's meeting could determine whether Pacific countries come on board for Australia's bid or not. Today, Pacific leaders and Anthony Albanese will travel to the remote island of Aitutaki for the latest summit. There, they'll board a traditional boat called the Teariki Moana. And with no media and almost no advisors allowed on board, there'll be a chance for leaders to have frank discussions. And Australia might also find itself under pressure to speed up its plan to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. That report by Lethe Mavona. Australia's supermarkets are moving too slowly to cut back the amount of plastic used in their stores, according to a new report. The Australian Marine Conservation Society found Coles and Woolworths are trailing Aldi in reducing the use of soft plastics, but stresses there's little progress across the board. On top of that, supermarkets aren't providing transparent data so their progress can be tracked. Elizabeth Crampsey reports. At the supermarket checkout, plastic bags are a thing of the past. But as you walk down the aisles, plastic packaging and wrapping is common, even for fruit and veggies like apples and cucumbers. Shane Cacao is from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. So none of the supermarkets, uh, with the exception of Aldi, have been able to show a clear reduction. Take Woolworths, for example. They report that they've reduced virgin plastic by a certain amount, but they don't report whether that's been done by cutting down plastic use or replacing it with recycled content or engaging in practices such as lightweighting, which involves reducing the thickness of plastics but not actually reducing the plastic packaging across all of the product range. The Australian Marine Conservation Society says it's done the audit of plastic use in supermarkets because they're not particularly transparent about the amount of plastic packaging on their shelves. And the report says products sold by supermarkets are a major source of the 145,000 tonnes of plastic that makes its way into the Australian environment every year. In a statement, a spokesperson for Coles says it supports a target of 100% reusable, recyclable or compostable packaging by 2025, adding that almost 84% of Coles' own brand packaging is recyclable. Shane Kukau from the Marine Conservation Society says it's time for tougher mandatory laws. We're on track to see the amount of plastics that are entering the globe's oceans triple by 2040 in terms of the annual plastic entering the ocean, unless we put in some clear, enforceable measures now to start bringing down the overall levels of plastic use. And I guess that's what we're seeing here in supermarkets, is that without that kind of regulatory environment, 
supermarkets are, you know, putting the recycling label onto products. Um, they're, you know, reducing thickness, which in, in essence saves them some money, but doesn't necessarily reduce the harm to wildlife. Um, but what they're not doing is cutting down the overall amount of plastic that's being used on products across the shelves. In a statement, the Federal Environment Minister says the government is working with state and territory counterparts to regulate packaging, including phasing out problematic single-use plastics. She says reforms will also include enforcement measures to make sure companies adhere to our strong regulations. The ABC approached two industry bodies, the Food and Grocery Council and the Australian Packaging Covenant Organisation, for comment, but they were unavailable. That report from Elizabeth Cramsey and David Sparks. Children in some of the Northern Territory's hottest remote communities have been swimming in crocodile-infested rivers because their local pools are closed. Councils can't get enough lifeguards to operate the public pools safely, but as Jane Barden reports, a charity is now working to reopen them. In the remote community of Nooker, the local Yugal Monkey Aboriginal Corporation's youth officer, Jean Daniels, has built a makeshift slip and slide to give kids some relief from soaring heat and humidity. Because the pool are working. How long has the pool not been open for? Nearly one year. Being painful for, for them, because we're going to go swimming, because crocs and all. Hi, my name is Gary Hogan. Important for us because it's so hot. We need to get some pool. Nooker resident Carrie-Anne Thompson says kids have been cooling off in the Rupert River despite the crocs. The pool, it needs to be open. It's a safety pool for the kids to swim, not at the river where the crocs are. The local mayor, Tony Jack, says his Rupert Gulf Regional Council was forced to close both its Nooker and Borolula pools. The big thing for us was lifeguards. See? That's the risk in the running of pool or any cancer. Since the drowning of a child in Kintour Pool west of Alice Springs three years ago, safety and maintenance concerns have closed seven of the NT's 18 remote pools and water parks. So the Rupert Gulf Council has taken teamed up with the YMCA to reopen pools using its qualified lifeguards. YMCA NT Chief Executive Matt Futrell. We've created a model whereby we are employing and training local staff and then supporting local staff with volunteers. The YMCA has a, an incredible network of aquatics facilities throughout Australia and we're recruiting from that network. So they come and work for up to a year with us. Accommodation provided, but people give their own time, their own commitment to giving back to community. Getting the pools reopened is important for safety. Aboriginal children are two and a half times more likely to drown than non-Aboriginal children. So the development of water safety and water skills is really important. The chlorinated water also helps keep kids healthy. Skin infections, including scabies and pyoderma, impact a lot of children in community, as does eye infections, trachoma, and ear infections, otosmitis. All of those conditions early in life lead to kidney and heart failure, loss of sight, loss of hearing, and the rate of infection for children has skyrocketed since the pool closures. Pools in some big communities like Water and Yundamu are still closed, but the YMCA has just reopened the Borolula and Nooker pools. Local kids couldn't be more excited. Jane Barden reporting there. That is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 
We all expect network failures sometimes, patchy internet, dropouts in phone calls, but Optus has taken it to a whole new level. Today, technology expert from the University of Melbourne, Sulet Dreyfus, on how an outage like this can leave us all vulnerable. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.